Good morning, Christ Community Church. Good to be here together on Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you of our brothers and sisters just led us singing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, none of us were smart enough to figure that out. None of us were wise enough. None of us were uh, in on it. It was all by your grace and your mercy that you opened our eyes so that we might recognize we needed a Savior. And Father, more than we needed a Savior, you provided one that was able to save. And that's what we're going to learn about this morning. Lord, thank you that our salvation does not rest in our own efforts. Lord, we are freed from the burden to try to save ourselves But Lord, as we cast ourselves on your mercy and your grace, which is a beautiful place to be, you love to save your people. Father, may we rejoice in that. May we exalt in that. May we be sobered by that this week as we enter into the most most important week that humanity has ever experienced, whether or not humanity realizes it, the week of Easter week, Father. We thank you today as we study the events that we call Palm Sunday and what they mean in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there is in a little yard of a little church in Germany the statue of a lamb with nothing other than a simple inscription below it that says, a memoriam to the crushed lamb. You see, uh, just after World War II, during reconstruction efforts in Germany, there were some workers on the top of a cathedral, a church, they were repairing the damage that was sustained during one of the battles. One of the men on a steep slope of the church tripped and fell off the side of the roof. Imagine his co-workers, gripped with fear, started crying out to the townsfolks to bring some aid to them as they rushed down the staircase to find their friend to help him although recognizing there was little chance that he would have survived a fall 30, 40 feet down from the rooftop. When they got to the ground floor, they were shocked and amazed to see their friend groaning in clear pain, but very much alive. As they ran to him, they realized that he was lying on something, a strange kind of cushion. When they popped him up to his feet, they immediately found out what had happened. See, right where he fell, grazing on the grass, was a little lamb. And the lamb broke the fall of this construction worker. The lamb was dead, but he was alive. So filled with gratitude, he built out of his own money a little memorial statue right in that location as a memorial to the crushed lamb. Now this construction worker uniquely understands the concept of a sacrificial lamb, that phrase we use all the time. He actually understood it and experienced it in its fullest. Sacrificial lambs are a common part of ancient society. They're not so common in our culture anymore. Sacrifices in general are not part of our culture. Uh, There are two emphasis, primary emphasis, when the Bible talks about sacrifice. One has to do with gifts and giving of gifts. And believe it or not, that has carried over into our culture today. We just don't associate the relational worship aspects to it. In our culture, it's mostly a practical economic thing, restaurants and and grocery stores. But in ancient culture, when you had a meal, you were very hands-on in preparing that meal. We are very removed from that whole process. So whenever you have a hamburger or chicken or fish, you're not involved in the killing of that animal. 
But the reality is, if we stop and think about it, in order for us to eat, in order for us to live, something has to die. And we're just removed from that, unless you live on a farm or worked in a farm. You don't even have a concept of what it takes to make a good hamburger, ultimately. My wife was sharing a story of uh, a friend of hers whose nephew was, and they were having dinner, five-year-old, they enjoyed a great chicken dinner. And as they were eating, the little boy kind of said, oh, wouldn't it be gross if this really was chicken? And he just kept eating. To which the whole family said, yes, absolutely, it would be gross if this was actually chicken. We just have no concept of what it's like to go out, grab a chicken, lop its head off, skin it, and fry it up. But in ancient culture, they did. And so sacrifice, sacrifice as a gift was a common understanding because it brought fellowship. It brought life and sustenance. Now, the aspect of sacrifice that hasn't carried over into our culture has to do with the atonement of offenses or the atonement of sin, making right something that was wrong. In general, our culture doesn't really comprehend the concept that when I do something wrong, there's significant consequence to it. There's relational damage. There's an offense that needs to be made right. But in ancient cultures, they're very aware of it. And believe it or not, the same things that make animal sacrifice to our modern sensibilities seem so barbaric and, and, and simply grotesque in that the, the sound of the animal shrieking in fear, the, the visceral cutting open of the throat and the blood just gushing forth and the writhing of the body. Now, if you find that grotesque, ancients did as well. You see, the difference is where we see that as grotesque and unnecessary, the ancients realized when I commit an offense, when I've done something wrong, the gravity of that action requires punishment. And I'm seeing the price of my offense lived out before me. Either that happens to me, or this animal takes the punishment in my place. And so all the things that make sacrifice so grotesque to us were still there. But what they would see that as the gravity of the results of offense and sin we simply see it as gross and barbaric because we don't have necessarily the vertical understanding. Our culture is not a culture based on worship as much as consumerism and entertainment. So we see sacrifice just barbaric. They saw sacrifice as barbaric, but also necessary when you live in a culture that constantly offends one another and cultures that offended their deity. And so while the, the gift aspect of sacrifice carries over in our culture, the sacrifice for the atonement of sins doesn't. But also there's another reason that it has not carried over into modern culture is because especially within the Christian church, there is no need for sacrifice any longer. Before the coming of Christ, there was always a need for sacrifice, but as the Bible clearly tells us, especially in the book of Hebrews, Christ was the sacrifice once for all. And that's another reason in the Christian church, there are no sacrifices. There are at least no animal sacrifices. Which makes what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1 verse 29 so astounding. Because when John the Baptist, baptizing people in the Jordan River, saw Christ coming to be baptized, the words he said were astounding because not only were they not the common understanding of the Messiah, but it was almost prophetic because John, when he saw Christ, said to his disciples, John's disciples, behold the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. 
And this week, this Easter week, this Sunday, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, and we think about the events of this week, which, which by the way, a little commercial, we have on our website a, a sheet of paper, it's a PDF file that I've put together that my family and I are going through that marks every day of this week and the gospel parallels that account for and take place, tell, tell you what took place on that day so you can read every day of this week what took place this week 2,000 years ago. That's on our website. I think, I think it's available right now. If you have problems finding it, call the office and we'd love to put that in your hands. So that this week, you're not just simply thinking about Palm Sunday, forget about it, show up Good Friday, and then maybe Easter, but all through the week, you're thinking about the most significant week in human history. And as we behold the Lamb, I would love for us to have both of those components there, both the gift, the gratitude that the fellowship that's been restored, as you've been, if you've been with us through our study of Ephesians, Christ made the new humanity possible, but also the horror of the gravity of our sin and the necessity of such a sacrifice. So with that, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. We're going to do a little jumping around today, but right now I'd love for you to start in Genesis chapter 22. We're going to go from the very beginning, before even the Mosaic law came to the nation of Israel, before there even was a nation of Israel, there was simply a family. It was Abraham, Abraham's family. In Genesis 22... God is asking Abraham to do the most shocking thing. If you're not familiar with the story, God had promised Abraham a child, and through this child that Abraham's descendants would go on to bless the world. It would be decades before that promised child came on the scene, so to speak. And in Genesis 22, God wants to test Abraham once more to see how much Abraham loves him, and asks Abraham to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. And so this is what we have here. Isaac doesn't know that he's the intended sacrifice. We'll get back to this later, but I just want to start us with this. Genesis 22, we're just going to read verse 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and Abraham said, here I am, my son. Isaac responded, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Of all the rites and rituals of the nation of Israel, Passover was the one festival, the one ritual that was centered on the lamb. And if you're not familiar with what Passover is, Passover is that festival that they celebrate. Even to this day, if you have uh, conservative Jewish friends, to this day they celebrate Passover. It is the event that remembers when God delivered the slave nation of Hebrews out of Egypt and they became the nation of Israel. God had visited upon Egypt amazing plagues, devastating that nation. But still, Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go until his final, final plague, the death angel. The death angel would come and wipe out the firstborn of everyone, even Israel, unless there was the blood of a sacrificed animal, a sacrificed lamb, and the blood was smeared on the doorposts of the house in whom the Israelites, the Jews, lived. When the death angel came, and if it would see the blood, the death angel would pass over that home, and go into the next home and see if there was blood on the doorposts. If there was no blood, 
the death angel would enter and, and kill the firstborn. And so you can imagine that night in Egypt, the kinds of cries and shrieks that went out. And even for the Jews who had sacrificed the lamb and put that blood on their doorposts, even with a, a sense of excitement about what God was going to do, can you imagine what it had been like to be in a nation hearing the cries and screams of all these families losing firstborn children? Well, that was the event that caused, that we would say, the, the straw that broke the camel's back that caused Pharaoh to let the Hebrews go. And every year after that, they celebrated it, calling it the Passover, because the blood of the lamb was seen and the death angel passed over. So of all the festivals that they had, Passover focused on the lamb. But you know, it was all just a picture, ultimately, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Passover was about lambs, lots and lots of lambs. It was in the reign of Josiah the king that made Passover up until that point. It was a kind of local family celebration that they celebrated in their homes. But under King Josiah, he made it a national celebration with the pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem. And so by this time in the biblical history, Passover was a huge deal, and thousands upon thousands of pilgrims would descend upon Jerusalem, and making this already crowded city packed to the gills with pilgrims from all over the area. Estimates put it at about 250,000 lambs sacrificed that week. Can you imagine the scene of all that was going on? Not only would it have been just uh, horrifying to see, but it was also a mixed in with this celebration, this unusual festival, because they recognized that they were delivered through the death of another. But there was one special lamb to the nation of Israel. It was called the Pashel lamb, the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb for the nation. And every day on this day, the high priest would go looking for the Passover lamb. So the Sunday we call Palm Sunday, according to Exodus 12, if you're a note taker, write that down, would be the 10th day um, in the Old Testament. It was the month of Aviv in the New Testament. It's the month of Nisan, kind of like the car, N-I-S-S-A-N. On this day, the high priest would look for a Passover lamb that was worthy to be sacrificed. And so every day, on the, every day this day, Palm Sunday, he would go out the Damascus Gate on the north side of the city. Now, I have a picture of it. Jack, if you can put up the photo of the Damascus Gate. This would be the exact gate that every year at Passover that the high priest would exit looking for a Passover lamb out of the one-year-old lambs that were born in Bethlehem. This is the actual gate that's been standing there for thousands of years. Now, this Passover, the Passover that we celebrate as Palm Sunday, in particular, was a very special Passover. It was known as a sabbatical Passover. Every seven years, the nation of Israel had a sabbatical Passover because it was a sabbatical year, a year in which they would do no farming. They would give the land rest. The people would have rest. And so they would stockpile provisions to last them for this year. It was believed that at a sabbatical Passover amongst the Jews, that on that kind of a Passover that the Messiah could come. This particular Passover, 
Josephus, the historian, would, would write that there were an estimated one million pilgrims that descended upon the city of Jerusalem. So making an already crowded city even much more crowded. Jack, you can show that other photo. So this is another picture of the same gate, but you can see the crowds of people milling about uh, with their umbrellas and all that kind of thing. So it's a very crowded situation. All around city, crowds of pilgrims were anticipating the beginning of Passover week, and there would usually be launched off, it would start off with a great parade and a procession when the high priest discovered what he would use as the Passover lamb. And on that particular Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, the 10th of Nisan, an entire entourage of priests would leave out of Herod's temple, would go out the northern gate, and they would stand on the Passover bridge. So you can imagine probably a good distance of a mile and a half right from the Temple Mount on either side of the roadway of Damascus Street, you'd have priests standing opposite each other, holding palm branches, rocking back and forth. You may have seen, if you've watched some, seen some videos of ancient Jews, they would do that and chant, and they would sing as they did this. Then the high priest with his entourage would walk out the city gates and go to the north to pick out a lamb that he felt was sufficient to act as the Passover lamb for the nation of Israel. Outside the city, there was excitement looking for the Passover lamb as the high priest searched. Inside the city, there was even more excitement as hundreds of thousands of pilgrims thronged into the city, bringing with them the palm branches and putting those palm branches up wherever they were staying for the time. And the priests, very eager, very eager, because you need to know that what would happen in Passover is that would be the one time of year that one person, the high priest, could go into the very presence of God and make atonement for sins. This was the only time of the year and the only person who could do it, and so there was much excitement. And when the high priest entered the Damascus gate, bringing the selected lamb that he found to be the sacrificial lamb, the priests who lined the roads would sing out from what we sang this morning, Psalm 118, Hosanna to the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And upon hearing that, the pilgrims in Jerusalem, they would then grab their palm branches and begin to wave them and run around shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna meant save now. But while the high priest was just north of the city looking for the Passover lamb, just to the east of the city, something else was going on. Jesus was riding on a colt down the Mount of Olives around the north side of the city to ride into Jerusalem. So we have a map here. It's not to scale, but I just want to point out To the upper left, you can see it says Damascus Gate. This is just to give you a sense of orientation. That's north. And then to the right, you see the words Lion's Gate. That's to the east. So Jesus was coming from the east as everybody was focused on the north. Now, Jack, show the next slide. This is the view from the east, from the Mount of Olives, where Jesus would ride down on the donkey. And you see... Right there, the old city of Jerusalem, and you see the modern city of Jerusalem right behind that. Where you see the gold dome is what's called the Dome of the Rock. That is um, a Muslim mosque built on the exact location of the Holy Temple of Israel, where once the, the, the temple stood, now the Dome of the Rock stands. You understand now why it's such a politically charged environment. That is the third most sacred uh, shrine of the Muslims, 
But that, was, that is on the location of the temple of the Jews. So I don't mean to get into that. I just want to give you a sense of orientation. So what Jesus would have seen is the temple as he comes down the Mount of Olives on the east to come around to the right to come into the Damascus Gate. Thanks, Jack. Now the people would have heard that Jesus was coming, and many believed, in fact, that Jesus was the Messiah. So out of excitement, they begin to take their cloaks off, take their robes off, and lay them in the robe, and they be- road, and they begin to wave their palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now as Jesus drew nearer and nearer to the Damascus Gate, the chant grew louder and louder and began to cascade down, all the way down Damascus Street, probably all the way right up to the Temple Mount. Now you can imagine if you are one of those hundreds of priests standing there rocking back and forth with your palm branch, that the shouting has taken place, but where's the high priest? Where's the high priest with the lamb? He hasn't come through yet because once they see the high priest with the lamb, they begin the shouting, the people hear them shouting, and then the people begin to shout, but the people are shouting. So you can imagine these priests peering down the road to see what's going on, and what do they see coming down through the Damascus Road? They don't see the high priest with the Passover lamb. They see the Passover lamb, although they don't know it, riding on a donkey. This is where I'll take you to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 and verses 4 through 9. Matthew writes this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying... Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd, verse 8, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And you see in verse 10, there's this comment, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now keep in mind, it was the priest's job to initiate the Hosanna chant. Matthew records that his disciples start singing it, and everyone starts singing it, so much so the city's kind of confused. They say, who is this? Luke records something very interesting. Keep your finger in Matthew and turn to the book of Luke. Just one verse in Luke. This is the same triumphal entry narrative in the book of Luke. 19, verse 39. So you picture the scene. The order's all messed up. The protocol's different. The people are shouting Hosanna. The priests are confused. They look down looking for the high priest with the Passover lamb. They don't see that. They actually see the Passover lamb, but they don't know it because that's Jesus on a donkey. All the crowd is cheering and yelling Hosanna, and Luke records this breach of protocol in verse verse 39 of Luke 19. And those who were in front rebuked Jesus, telling him to be silent. Excuse me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. I'm reading the wrong verse, aren't I? That's right, I'm reading Luke 18. Sorry, Luke 19. I hope I didn't confuse you. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
Teacher, this is not how it goes. You know the routine here. You're Jewish. The high priest hasn't got the lamb yet, and they're all calling out for you. Rebuke these people. Jesus says if they don't cry out, the very stones would cry out. What a moment. The real Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had come. And the city was erupting in euphoria. So on this 10th day of Nisan, that Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, the high priest went out of Jerusalem through the north gate in order to find the most perfect of Passover lambs. And that same day, almost at the same moment in, rides the Passover lamb that all those other Passover lambs pointed to, that all 250,000 lambs that were being sacrificed pointed to this one. But in the days between when the Passover lamb was chosen and when it was sacrificed would be days of inspection and examination. Because, as Exodus 12.5 says, the lamb had to be perfect without blemish. And so they would inspect it thoroughly. This is why, by the way, this last week of Jesus' life takes up more ink in all four Gospels combined than in any other period in his three-and-a-half-year ministry. There's more recorded on just this last week than any other period of his life. And on the day Tuesday, two days from now, 13% of all the gospel narratives are focused on that one day. Why? Because that was the day Jesus was inspected. Now, what do you mean by inspected? He was questioned thoroughly by the scribes, by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, even by Pilate and Herod, all on Tuesday, or all on that week, and particularly on Tuesday. In other words... Without them even realizing it, God was using their cynical, hard-hearted disbelief in questioning and challenging Jesus to inspect and make sure that the Passover lamb was as perfect as necessary. And that's what we're going to look at in our remaining time. These three challenges, these three moments when they inspected the Passover lamb without even realizing it. We're all going to stay, we're going to stay in the book of Luke for the most part to do this. Luke chapter 20. So if I haven't told you about that, go to Luke chapter 20. For you note takers, they questioned his authority, they questioned his integrity, and they questioned his theology. They inspected his authority, they inspected his integrity, and they inspected his theology, and he was found perfect in each and every instance. Luke chapter 20. Verses 1 through 8. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, keep in mind this is a few days after Palm Sunday, this is Tuesday, preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So you see the situation. They wanted to challenge his authority. 
what gave him the right to say and do the things he was doing. Now, if you read the gospel narratives about this particular week, Jesus had, in fact, done some things that really got the religious leaders upset. He had upended their religious system, and they had had it. And here he was teaching again, and they wanted to challenge him and say, where do you get this authority? Who do you think you are? And so Jesus answered them. If Jesus would have answered them that he doesn't have the authority, after all, he's not an official rabbi. He's not of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He's not of the aristocracy. He's, after all, a carpenter's son. If he said he had real no authority, they would have arrested him. If he had said the authority completely comes from me, they would have arrested him for being a false, uh, false messiah. So he asked them a question. Okay. Where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Was it from heaven or was it from man? And they see now, they've tried to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They find they are now on the horns of a dilemma. Because no matter how they answer this question, things are not going to work out well for them. So they decide to plead the fifth. They say, well, we don't know where it came from. Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. The reason being, if they, being the religious leaders, did not even know where the religious authority of John the Baptist came from, what good would it be for him to tell him where his authority comes from? But by the way, this was a sham. Everyone knew he had authority. This is the beauty of having four Gospels. They all record different things from different perspectives to help us get a fuller picture. Mark's Gospel who was written not to Jews, but primarily a Roman audience, who valued authority above all else, constantly refers to the authority that Jesus had. There are key words in Mark. Amazed, immediately, and authority. Let me just read to you quickly from Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, the crowds amaze at the authority that Jesus had as a teacher. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The crowds amazed over the authority that Jesus had over disease. The crowds amazed over the authority Jesus had to forgive sins. Mark chapter 4. The crowds amazed over Jesus' authority over nature. That's where he tells the seas and the winds to die down, and in an instant they stop. In Mark chapter 5, in the beginning, the crowds amazed over the authority Jesus had over demons. The demoniac approaches them, and in a word, he casts it out. The end of Mark chapter 5, the people are amazed over the authority that Jesus had over death. Behind all this amazed authority is the repeating question on the lips of the Pharisees and the disciples, who is this man? And Mark sets up the gospel in such a way that the question, who is this man, and this amazement at his authority, all climaxes in chapter 8 when he asks them, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. That is the pivot of Mark 8, and the rest of the book plays that out. Everybody knew his authority was well established, but the Pharisees were playing a sham, and he had caught them and called them on it. And better yet, he goes on to share a parable that I want to read to you now. Same, same Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. And he began to tell this par- a parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the vineyard owner sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed as well, verse 12. And he sent yet a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? 
I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very moment, for they perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. You see, Jesus knew what was exactly what was going on. These religious leaders knew exactly what was going on. And the parable, their feeling of guilt from the parable proved that. And Jesus says, what is this then? The, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What he's saying is the cornerstone, that Jesus being the cornerstone, that, that all the, the angles and elevations off the structure were based on that cornerstone. It was the most important piece of the, the building project that there was. And they had rejected that cornerstone. Now, if you've been with us in our study of Ephesians, we've been talking about how because of Christ, there is a new humanity. Because he is that cornerstone that sets all the angles and elevations of this new building that God is building, the church. He says, you've rejected me. The very cornerstone, the most fundamental stone used to make the building. And you've rejected it. They couldn't disprove his authority. They had failed. And so they moved on to another one. They wanted to question him in his second challenge. They couldn't get him on authority or lack of authority. They would get him on integrity. Look at verses 20 to 26 of Luke chapter 20. So they watched him, the Herodians in this case, and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. You just see the, Luke is trying to bring out the hypocrisy and irony in this. We know that you speak and teach rightly, and, and you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They're laying it on thick. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, it's a coin, Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. See, they they thought they could catch him again. Jesus, we know you're the real deal. You're sent from God. You'd never lead us astray. So uh, should we pay tribute to Caesar? Because Caesar claimed to be God. Should we give this man respect? You see what they were doing? They are trying to make Jesus say something to put, him in a, put his back in a corner so that they could turn the populace against him. But Jesus is brilliant. He says, give me a denarius. Give me a coin. And he looks at it. He says, whose image is on this? They all go, Caesar's. Jesus says, you know what? Whatever Caesar's got his image on, you give that to Caesar. But what God's got his image on you give that to God. And humanity is the image of God. 
When Jesus is saying, look, Caesar can have his trinkets. Caesar can have his things of this world. And you guys too, for that matter. But whatever has the imprint of God, you give to him. They all would have known well what the Torah taught. That humanity, as we've been learning, was made in the image of God. What has the image of Caesar, things of this world? Give it to him. What has the image of God? People, people's hearts, their allegiance, give it to God. You can imagine these Pharisees like, what do, we, what do we do with this guy? We can't nail him. So if it's not on his authority, if it's not on his integrity, the third challenge is they're going to nail him on the theology. If they can make him blasphemous or blaspheme something, maybe they can try him on that. Verses 27 to 38. Actually, let me see here. Excuse me for a second. We might go... Go to Mark 12. Let's do that. Mark chapter 12. We're going to read Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. So they questioned his authority. They inspected his authority. They inspected his integrity. Now they're going to inspect his theology. And again, the gospel writers are trying to interpret the situation for us as best they can. And the Sadducees came to him. By the way, the Sadducees, Mark is writing here, say there is no resurrection. They didn't believe in in a resurrection from the dead. That's why they're sad, you see. You guys guys have heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I just thought I'd throw it out there. Well, the Sadducees, we would say that they were kind of the theological liberals. They didn't believe in supernatural events. They didn't believe, unlike the Pharisees who held to a resurrection, They didn't believe in a resurrection. So there's an irony in the hypocrisy that these Sadducees who don't even believe in something are asking Jesus about it. And I think the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is wanting us to see the the dripping irony and hypocrisy of the hardened human heart. And the Sadducees came to him and say, there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This was so that the inheritance would always perpetually stay within the family. So if your brother died and and he had no child, as his brother, you would take his wife and have a child for him. Well, verse verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died and left no child, um, the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And then the third likewise. And then the seven, all seven, took her as wife and died and left no offspring. Right, we're all thinking about how she cooks at this point. So, um, so, um, so, so, teacher, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. You can imagine at this point, they are just doing that conniving folding of their hands because they think they have got him now. But they don't know Jesus and this is a perfect example, and we've seen it in, in all these challenges. Jesus knows the heart of man, and he is not distracted by the things they present, and he goes to the issue. And you notice when you read the Bible, sometimes the question posed to Jesus and the response, you kind of go, what? Where, what? Where did that come from? I believe what's going on is Jesus always understands what may sound like a question usually is not a question, but there's something underneath it. And Jesus never gets distracted by what's on the surface. 
He goes right to the heart. I think just pastorally, that's good to know. Because so often, I get distracted by things of this world, and even in the way I approach God, and he never gets distracted, but he goes for the heart of the matter. Just like he does here in Mark 12. Jesus said to them, I I love his candor, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Okay, so he's going to address their, their, their foolish, not only do they not believe in the resurrection, their absurd example. He's going to address it, but then get to what matters. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Okay, so here's he turns. Okay, let's talk about being raised from the dead. I know you don't believe in it, so I don't even know why you're asking me about this. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, Exodus 3.14, how God spoke to him, Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are wrong. I love how God's word is so amazingly dependable. Jesus says, when God spoke to Moses, he said, I, I'm not God of, I was not the God of Abraham, or was the God of Jacob and Isaac, because they would have been dead by that point. He says, I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Abraham, present tense. Not I was Abraham's God, I was Jacob's God. I am their God. They are still alive. In other words, the whole doctrine of the resurrection from the dead turned on the present tense of the verb, I am, versus I was. And he says, you are wrong. You don't even believe the very scriptures that you are trying to use against me. I love how God's word is so dependable. Down to the tense of the verbs. Jesus would say later in the gospels that there is not a jot or iota. If you uh, have ever seen Hebrew script, They've got all these dots and little twiggly things. Well, those things are jots and iotas. And he says, not one of those are going to go away. And he shows it here that the tense of the verbs, he spins it and says, no, you're wrong. He's not, he wasn't the God of Abraham or wasn't the God of Jacob. He is the God of Abraham and Jacob because they're still alive. It's interesting. If you read the Gospels, 26 times you see the phrase, it is written. And 34 times the phrase, it has been fulfilled. It is written. It has been fulfilled. God's word is dependable and reliable. In Luke chapter 4, when, when, uh, right before Jesus' earthly ministry, he went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when the devil tempted him, he kept coming back, not with his own opinion, not with his own good ideas. He says, it is written. It is written. The scripture teaches thus. Now that's pretty significant. And why that is, is because when Satan came to test humanity in the form of Adam and Eve, he said, did God say? And then Adam and Eve doubted what God had said. And all of humanity was thrust into sin. When God created the nation of Israel and gave the word to them, his laws to them, They disobeyed his word, and all of humanity continued to be lost. That is why Jesus is called the last Adam in the new Israel. 
Because where Adam and Israel and all of humanity failed in disbelieving and doubting God's word, Jesus went back and back and back and back. And that's why you see that refrain all through the gospels like a drummer hitting a drumbeat. It is written, it has been fulfilled. Because Jesus came to fulfill every dot and tittle, everything of the law, so that he could put it away, as we learned in Ephesians, to open a means of salvation to all, not based on law or morality, but based on grace through Christ. Look at verse uh, chapter 20. Go back to Luke chapter 20, verses 39 and 40. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him any question. Without fault, he answered every question perfectly. They inspected everything they could about him and found him to be perfect. They tried to trick him with trick questions to get him to say something that was wrong, but he passed every single test. And finally, in desperation, when they couldn't find anything wrong with him, When they couldn't find anything wrong with this lamb, they sent him to the Roman governor Pilate to be inspected. Go to chapter 23 of the book of Luke. And verse 4, Pilate inspects him as well. 23, 4 of Luke, Pilate says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. So the Jews couldn't find anything wrong with this lamb, Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with this lamb. And then they realized, wait a minute, he's from Galilee. That's Herod's area. Let's send him to Herod. And look at verse 14 of the same chapter in in Luke 23. Herod says, you've brought me this man. I've examined him before you, and I find no fault in this man. So the Jews couldn't find any fault in Jesus. The Romans couldn't find fault in Jesus. The governor and the tetrarch, none of these guys could find fault in Jesus. The lamb had been inspected and found perfect. In 1 Peter chapter 119, Peter writes that Jesus was a lamb without blemish. Chapter 2, verse 22, he, com- he says, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Not only was Jesus inspected like the Passover lamb, Jesus was crucified on the same day and the same time the Passover lamb was. On Good Friday, the same moment that the Passover lamb was being sacrificed in the temple, outside the city, Jesus was being nailed to a cross. Outside that city, the Lamb of God God died on the very same mountaintop that God asked Abraham to take his son to to be sacrificed. And as Abraham, in faith, even though confused, put his son on the altar and raised the knife to take his life, God said, Abraham, stop. I see now that nothing is, you keep nothing back from me. You love me more than anything. Do not sacrifice your son. And they saw in the thicket an animal that they used as a sacrifice. God said, Abraham, you don't sacrifice your son because I'm going to sacrifice my son for you. On the same mountaintop, Mount Moriah, that later became the city of Jerusalem, thousands upon thousands of lambs were sacrificed in the same spot 
Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. And just several yards to the north, excuse me, to the west, the final sacrificial lamb was sacrificed. You see, God stopped Abraham's hand from sacrificing his son, but nobody stopped God's hand from sacrificing his son because there was no other way. There was no other way. This had always been the plan, that the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, would die on our behalf. So whatever questions we have, like the questions they took to Jesus, we can take them to Jesus, and he will answer them. We may not even like the way he answers them, but he answers them and can be trusted because he knows what he's doing. Had you even told the disciples what God's plan was, they would say, wait a minute, that's crazy. You can't do that. But it was through that darkness, through that trial, that horrible week, that became the most glorious week humanity will ever know. The cross is the most beautiful picture because on the one and same time, we see the wrath and justice and holiness of God meting out all the punishment of every sinner on this planet. And we see the love and compassion and mercy and grace of a dad who loves every child all in one. And it had to be a perfect Passover lamb to make that work. Revelation 5, 11, 12 says this. Then I looked, John wrote, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing." So this last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, it is all about the lamb. I just want to close with the, the child's uh, poem that we all are familiar with. Just change a few of the words. Mary's little, Mary had a little lamb. He was born on Christmas Day. She laid him in a manger bed to sleep upon the hay. Mary had a little lamb. His life was white as snow. And everywhere that God would lead this lamb, he would surely go. Mary had a little lamb, but he wasn't hers, you know. He was the very son of God, the one who loves us so. He came to give us joy and peace and take away our sin, so when he knocks on your heart's door, be sure to let him in. Why do I love this precious lamb? What can the reason be? My answer is quite simple, because he first loved me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did for us something that we could never do for ourselves. You are the perfect sacrificial lamb. You are the one that enables us to have fellowship and freedom, to be family with God above. You lived the perfect life, a life we could have never lived, and you died the death we should have so that we wouldn't have to. So, Lord, we worship you, we thank you, and we ask that this week, this would not just be a regular old week and we think about you on Good Friday and celebrate you on Easter, but we realize this week that it's all about you and come to realize that life is all about you because you give us life. We'll thank you for it. We pray you'd bless us with a beautiful understanding of who you are and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.